So we finally swing into 2 Corinthians tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to cover. And just by way of introduction, now I hope you understand that what I'm about to say, most of it isn't in Scripture. It's, it's a matter of trying to deduce what happened between 1 and 2 Corinthians. We get this from the clues that we have in 2 Corinthians, we get some of it from the book of Acts. Uh, basically, when Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthians, the one we just got finished reading, you have to think he thought to himself, well, this is going to solve it. All these problems that they've told me about in their letter to me, all these other problems that I heard about from the household of Chloe, those members of that church who said, hey, they're not telling you the real story. This is what's really going on. I've addressed all of them under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So they're going to get the answers and they're going to obey and that church is going to be on the right track. Well, that's not what happened. As best we can tell, in the 18 months or so between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, here are the events that occurred. Number one, we know because Paul mentions it, that he made a painful visit to Corinth. We don't know exactly what he did there or why it was so painful. We assume he... he felt the need to follow up on his letter, and when he got there, found that the people hadn't received his word in a, in a good spirit the first time. So he had a painful visit. You know what that's like, I'm sure, when you go to visit someone and you, you're looking forward to a, a great reunion and everything's going to be, it's just going to be a time of fellowship, but instead there are issues you didn't know about, and it ter turns out to be a time of argument or a time of sadness or a time of blame. Uh, Paul made a painful visit to Corinth, and then he followed that up with what he calls in 2 Corinthians a painful letter. I'm sorry I had to write you this painful letter. We don't have a, a copy of that. God in His providence did not see fit to give it to us, so that's not part of our Scripture canon, but Paul writes them this painful letter. And then third, uh, Paul, who was in Ephesus at the time, had to leave Ephesus because of a riot. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. The riot was caused because uh, Paul and the other apostles, the other Christians, were making such a powerful impact on the city of Ephesus that it was changing the economy. There were people who had made their living from the worship of Artemis, the goddess that uh, whose temple was sort of the... The, the main tourist attraction in Ephesus. And so many people were becoming believers in Jesus that trade uh, to that temple was being cut. And so people who made a living from that temple, people who sold little silver shrines of Artemis and other kinds of uh, trades were hurt. Can you imagine being so uh, powerful in our impact on our city that it changes the economy, that, that certain uh, industries or businesses that victimize other people go out of business because we're changing the environment. That's what was happening in Ephesus. And there was a riot. Paul had to leave. Meanwhile, Titus, his friend, had gone to Corinth and he comes back and he gives Paul good news and bad news. The good news, he says, Paul, is that this painful letter you sent, well, they responded well. Apparently this time they, they heard your words and they're ready to repent. They're ready to get right with God and with you. The bad news is there's still some people there who are upset with you. There are hurtful things that were said when I was there about you and your ministry. There are people in the church who believe that we don't need to listen to Paul. 
What, what makes him an apostle? After all, he didn't walk with Jesus like the other apostles. Why would we give him the same authority, the same cloud as we give someone like Peter or James or John or people like that? And then the fifth thing we know is, because Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians, he was suffering in some way with what he called a thorn in the flesh. We don't know that it started between 1 and 2 Corinthians. We just know it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians and not in 1. So with all this, I mean, Paul has experienced a lot. Some of it caused by the church in Corinth. Some of it caused by the people of Ephesus. Some of it caused by his own struggles, whatever they may be. And we'll talk about that when we get to that chapter. Keep all that in mind when you start reading 2 Corinthians. Keep in mind the state of mind that Paul was writing from. He was from a state of mind of frustration, grief, pain, perhaps even fear. So with all that as an introduction, we'll pick up the letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, by the way, he almost always starts his letters with an apostle of Christ Jesus. I don't think we can infer that that's why he says it here, because there are those who question his apostleship. But he will feel the need to defend himself later. It says, To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we are able, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort in salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We think he's talking there about the riot in Ephesus. We despaired of life itself. We thought that we were going to die. If you read that story in, Ephes in Acts 19, I think Luke kind of downplays it, but you can imagine if a whole city or if, if thousands of people gathered in a stadium and shouted over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and wanted to round up the Christians and bring them in to put them on trial in basically a, a kangaroo court right there in the middle of the city, you would feel intimidated. You would feel, as you heard that crowd chanting all over the city, you would, you would think to yourself, what's going to happen? We might die here. He says in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that, we may deliver, that He may deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So you can look at this opening section as being about how to, how to face hard times. And all of us do that from time to time. Some of you may be going through that right now. All of us go through difficulties. All of us go through times of grief, times of struggle, times of pain, times of suffering. And one of the things I've learned is when we go through difficult times, we want to know why it's happening. We want to know that at least there's some sense of meaning. 
A lot of times, uh, suffering seems random. I had an aunt, a great aunt, who died of lung cancer, never smoked. Doesn't mean that people who smoke deserve to get lung cancer, but it just means at least you can, you can draw a, a straight line from one dot to the other and say, oh, okay, well, he, he smoked and this is one of the effects. But with, with her, she never smoked. And so you think, well, why would she get it? Um, I, I've known people who have gotten fired from jobs when they were the best employee on the place. They did everything they could. And yet, either because of politics or economics or maybe their particular job just was phased out. Their, their job title wasn't needed. It wasn't their fault. They'd done everything right. And then they lost their living anyway. Uh, of course, we all know of stories of people who are injured or even killed in, in freak accidents where you can't say, uh, you know, if he hadn't been driving recklessly or if he hadn't, uh, you know, eaten too much bacon or whatever. It was just a, a random thing. And our suffering sometimes feels that way. And one thing I've learned, I hope you understand this. I hope you'll take my advice. In situations like that, never say to someone, well, you know, it's God's will. That's, that's always the wrong thing to say because you don't know what God's will is. There are plenty of things that happen in this world that we know aren't the will of God because God does not ordain sin. So don't say it's God's will. That's not going to help anybody. What you can do, though, is bring them to the God of all comfort. That's what verse 3 says. He is the God of all comfort. And this passage, what, this, what Paul says here, shows us some important things about what it means to suffer as a believer. And if you know the New Testament, and the old too, because there's plenty about this in Job and Psalms and other areas. But if you know the Bible, you know there is a lot of information about how to handle suffering. It's funny, isn't it, that uh, so much of our preaching today, so much of our popular ministries and, and our popular books that you find in Christian bookstores, if those still exist, uh, they're about how to be successful and happy and how to have your best life. And yet, there's a lot more information in the Bible about how to handle suffering than there is about how to become successful. Maybe that should tell you a little something about what God, maybe God is trying to tell you a little something about what to expect from life. So what does it mean to suffer as a believer? According to this passage, the first thing is you turn to God for comfort. That's your first step. That's always your first step is to cry out to God. He is again, the God of all comfort, the father of compassion. Don't ever believe those who say that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be sad. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't weep. If you're a Christian, you should always be happy. The fact that we should rejoice in all things doesn't mean that we don't also have sorrow at times. Jesus wept. Uh, again, you read the Psalms and David cries out to God. Job, of course, says it'd been better for me if I hadn't been born. Uh, Elijah fell down on his face under the broom tree and said, God, just take my life now. I'm no better than my father's. There are many, many stories of Scripture that show people in a time of sadness and discouragement, and God doesn't get mad at them for it. God doesn't say, well, I'm so disappointed in you. Why don't you just stand up straight? He understands. Turn to the God of all comfort. I love that little detail, that, just, that one little phrase, one little sentence in Revelation 21. It's already... One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, talking about the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and, and, and the things that will be different in that new world than, than are now. And, and one of the things it just simply says is, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And how intimate that picture is. Not just 
there won't be any crying there. That would be good enough. But the fact that he himself wipes the tears from our eyes. And I take that to mean that when we first get there, we will still be sad about some things and God will, will carry us through that sadness. He'll comfort us. He'll, he'll wipe the tears from our eyes. He'll, he'll get us through to a place where we have perfect joy. Uh, someday we'll have that perfect comfort. Now we look to him for that. We cry out to him and we say, Father, I'm hurting. I don't understand this. I, I don't know why this had to happen. I don't know how to go on. If you, if you lose a loved one and someone expects you to be back to normal within a few days, they've never been through grief or they've forgotten because that's not the way it works. And so I, I can tell you from be, walking with people who've gone through grief, including my own family, um, when you're grieving, you have to exercise a lot of patience sometimes when people come up and say, well, how you doing? And you want to say, don't ask me that. Don't ask me how. You don't want to know how I'm doing. You have to be patient with them. They don't understand. They don't know what they're saying. In the meantime, you, you, you run to God. You let Him guide you. Uh, when we were children, we knew who to cry out to when we were afraid, when we were hurting. We cried out to our parents. Maybe your mom, maybe your dad, maybe both, depending on what your relationship with them was like. But you didn't have to be told to cry out to mom or dad in the middle of the night when you had a stomach ache or when you came home from school and someone had stolen your lunch money. You knew who to talk to. We should have that same attitude toward God. It ought to be automatic. Just, it ought to be just hardwired into our existence that we tell Him everything, that we leave nothing back. And instead of simply praying as, as we're wont to pray, Lord, make the pain go away. Nothing wrong with saying that. Lord, get me through this. Lord, take this pain away. Lord, get me back to normal. Nothing wrong with that. But don't stop there. Pray that God would help you deal with the pain. Pray that God would help you grow through the pain. Um, my wife was telling me the other day, was reminding me that when my son Will was in first grade, he had a really tough first grade year. A lot of kids experience this because I don't know. It just seems to me every kindergarten teacher is the sweetest lady on earth, right? You go to kindergarten and it's just sweetness and light and little songs and games and oh, it's so fun and you're, you're, just, you're just special. And then first grade starts and that's real school. And uh, Will had a teacher uh, and, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you her name because she didn't do anything wrong, but her name was literally Mrs. Payne. <laughs> She's a fine lady, a good teacher. It's just, she was, a re she was really trying to teach these kids and Will wasn't ready for that. And he just did not jive with Mrs. Payne for whatever reason. And so there came a point after the first six weeks or so of school where he cried every morning on the way to school. And so Carrie would come back from dropping him off and she would be crying. And I finally had to say, listen, I'm gonna, it's gonna make me late to work every day, but I'll start taking Will to school. And... He didn't cry when I took him. I don't know why that was. I don't know if that's good or bad, or if he thought, well, dad's not gonna care if I cry, so I'm not gonna cry. I don't know what it means, but what, what it boils down to is, I couldn't, my, my decision couldn't be, well, this is hard for him, so let's take him out of it. My decision couldn't be, okay, you just don't have to go to school anymore. Instead, what I did was, okay, I'll take you there. And we got through first grade. Sometimes when we pray to God and say, Lord, take this pain away, His answer is going to be, I can't now. 
You, there's no way for you to understand it, but right now you're going to have to live with this pain for a while, but I'll be with you. I'll get you through this. Sometimes we get a miracle. Sometimes we pray and the next day we feel great. Sometimes we pray and the next day we get a phone call and everything's gone perfectly. But a lot of times the answer is not yet. This pain's going to last a little while, but I'll be with you. And that matters. Call on Him for comfort. Number two, we comfort others through our experiences. And that's what verses 4 through 6 are about. He says, the reason God comforts us in all our afflictions is so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. I know that's a confusing sentence, the way it's written in English. In Greek, it probably flows a lot better. But the idea of it is understandable. I mean, if as, as you look at, at Paul and he talks about his own afflictions, remember this, he's writing to people, some of whom don't accept him as an apostle. So instead of leading with all of his qualifications, he starts listing his afflictions. And he'll double down on that later on in this book. And his point is this, number one, it's, it's my afflictions that have made me who I am. It's my pain that has gotten me to this point. But number two, it enables me to identify with you. You're struggling too. And so I know where you've been. Um, this true story, I, I, I remember years ago, I was, uh, I was 30 years old because I was a new, new pastor at, at this church when I was 30, and I preached a sermon on suffering. And someone came up to me later and said, you're 30 years old, what do you know about suffering? <laughs> they were right, I didn't. I said, I, I don't. I, I, all I can tell you is what's in the Bible. Um, Paul didn't have that problem. Paul knew suffering, and so he had a credibility to speak to those people. In the same way, uh, if, if you have been through a divorce, I never tell you, oh, hallelujah, you got divorced. No, but can you relate to someone who's been through a divorce in a way that I can't? Absolutely. If you've fought off cancer, I've never done that, but perhaps you have, and you can relate to someone who's been given that diagnosis. Um, if you've had a, a teenager who ran away from home or who got pregnant outside of wedlock, I've not experienced that. If you have, you can relate to people. I've never experienced clinical depression, but many, many, many of our neighbors have. And if you do, I'm not saying you should rejoice that you do. I'm saying God can use that struggle that you've gone through to say to that other person, this doesn't mean God hates you. It doesn't mean you're less of a person. Here's what happened to me. Here's how I made it through. And you have a credibility that I don't have as a minister. So my word to you is when you go through whatever suffering you're going through, turn to God for comfort, but also pray that God would show you how can you use this in my life. And just wait, because He will. He will not waste your pain or my pain. And third, Paul would say, don't miss a chance to grow closer to God. As he says in verse 9, uh, in verse 9, he said, we, when we were in that city and the whole city rioted and we thought we were going to die, we felt like we were under the sentence of death, and yet it's like He raised us from the dead in, in verse 10. No, I'm sorry, in verse 9. He's the God who raises the dead. So it felt like a miracle. We stayed with Him and our faith grew even through this time. I don't know that Paul would say, I'm glad that riot happened because he would like to still be there in Ephesus leading that church. But he was able to say, look at what happened. Look at how much stronger my faith is now because I've seen what he could deliver me through. 
And that's the case with us too. We have a chance to grow closer to God. Psalm 131 verse 2 is one of those, one of those passages I didn't grow up knowing, but I heard a preacher several years back read that and preach out of it. I'd never heard anybody preach on Psalm 131. Verse 2 says, My heart is like a weaned child before you. And the preacher said, isn't that interesting? The, the picture of a, a weaned child is a child who is content with his mother, right? Because a non-weaned child is always fussing because they always want more food. They always want to be fed. But a weaned child is fine. They're, they're sitting there with their mother. They're, they just want to be with her. They look to her not for what she can give them. They're content just to be in her presence. And that's a beautiful picture of where God wants us to be. But then the preacher said something I didn't like. He said, how does a child get weaned? Through strategic disappointment. Boy, I didn't like hearing that. But he's right. To wean a child, you have to say no sometimes. Child cries and you say, no, you don't, you don't need milk right now. Child wakes up in the middle of the night. Nope, you need to go back to sleep. And that's, that's a shock to that child's system because up till then, whatever he said, whenever he screams, mom comes running and gives him what he needs. But now that's all changed. Sometimes uh, we grow closer to God through some strategic disappointments. We ask for something and God says no. And we think, well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's not what that guy on TV said. He said, if I have enough faith, then I'll get whatever I ask for. And God says, no, my job is not to give you everything you want. My job is to grow you into the image of my son. And that sometimes happens through strategic disappointment. Granted, sometimes it happens through mountaintop experiences and through Bible studies and, and times of fellowship. And oh, isn't that great? But sometimes it happens through pain. And sometimes it happens through getting told no by the Lord when we pray. I wish it wasn't so, but it is... Absolutely so. And then finally, we increase the faith of others. We focus on increasing their faith. Not only does our faith grow, but we increase the faith of others. It's important for us to tell our story. It's important for us to let people in on our struggles so they can grow through our experiences too. And I know that's easier for some people than others. Some people are, are more extroverted. Some people are more public and others are more quiet and private. And if you're one of those quiet and private people, you might be embarrassed for everybody to know your business. And then again, there are some of us that tell everybody way more than we should about ourselves. We're just, we're our own favorite subject and that needs to change. But somewhere in the middle is where we ought to be, where when we're truly struggling, we let our church family know, or at least our, our, the, those in our small group and just say, here's what I'm dealing with. Because watching you walk through that struggle can bring them greater faith. As he says in verse 11, You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What he's saying is, I'm sharing this with you so you'll pray for me. And when you see what God does in our lives, it will increase your faith. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So... If you're one of those people who says, I, I, don't, I don't want to share everything that's going on in my life, just keep in mind that as you give people a, an opportunity to pray for you, you're also giving them an opportunity for their faith to grow. So it's not selfish for you to ask for prayer, for you to ask for support. It's actually giving people an opportunity to grow. I, my parents uh, 
for many years have gone to a church in Victoria. My, my uncle used to be the pastor of it. Um, and there was a young man in that church named Caleb who was just one of those young men you look at and think, this is the ideal young Christian man. I mean, went on mission trips, taught Bible studies, just sold out for the Lord. And you thought, he's going to do great things. And then he went skiing one winter and had an accident, suffered a traumatic brain injury. I mean, had to be helicoptered off the mountain. I mean, by all accounts, should have died, but didn't. Took him months and months of heavy-duty therapy just to be able to walk again, to talk again, to function again. Um, that's not something anybody would have chosen for him. And he's doing really well now. But that changed a lot of his plans for life. It changed his whole life path that he had in mind. And yet through that whole process, there were thousands of people across the country, maybe even around the world, praying for him. His mom posted it on social media and sent messages and letters and emails to everyone she knew. I remember going and visiting him down at Tier in Houston because I was pastoring in Houston at the time. In the process, she decided to write a book and wrote a book about the whole experience and how God brought them through. And many, many people have read that book. And you think about it, this was a young man that just wanted to touch the world for Christ. And he has already. In fact, because of his accident, I don't know this, I'm just guessing, when he, he may get to heaven and find out that all of all the things he did in the course of his life, that accident and its aftermath enabled him to touch more people than anything else. Because that's how God works. God takes what the enemy means for evil and turns it into good. He's it's the kind of God He is. We can have faith in Him that no matter what occurs, He will bring us victory through the power of Jesus Christ. I don't say any of these things lightly. I hope you understand that. I don't say any of these things as if to say, so suffering's not bad at all, because it still is. But this is how we can get through it. All right? Let me pray for us tonight. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you are the God who suffers with us. There's no other God uh, in any other religion that suffers with us, that literally suffered for us. And so we know that you understand. We pray, Lord, for people in this room and people who are watching online, anybody who, had, who is going through a time of struggling right now, that you would give them strength and peace and comfort, help them to trust in you. Lord, for those of us for whom things are going well right now, I pray that you would prepare us for the challenges that lie ahead. Let us not live in fear, but always walk in confidence in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.